Now, when I'm very good and do as I am told, I'm Mama's little angel and Papa says I'm good as gold. The stars are ageless. You brought this on yourself. In 1962, just nine days after wrapping Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, Betty Davis placed an ad in Variety, advertising her services as an actress. Mother-free, divorcee, American, 30 years experience as an actress in motion pictures, it said, Mobile still and more affable than Ruba would have it, one steady employment in Hollywood. This ad was circulated and mocked widely in Hollywood. Some people said that this was a desperate act, unbecoming of a great star. Some included her baby Jane co-star Joan Crawford, who said that she would, quote, pack up my bags, get on a bus and work as a waitress in Tucson before I would belittle my name by begging in public for a job. Others thought that this was a slap in the face of the producers of Baby Jane and also her agent, who Betty did not consult before placing the ad. Betty herself later on said that the ad was meant to be tongue-in-cheek, half playful and half serious, because she had just had a hit play, just wrapped a highly publicized movie, and her memoir The Lonely Life had just come out. She was busy, but she also had a grudge to bear with a Hollywood that was willing to cast her aside and unwilling to continue giving her good roles despite how much she had proven herself worthy of them. I wanted Hollywood and the money men who finance pictures to know, she wrote, that unless they gave me a chance in good films, how could I be box office again? Welcome to the Final Girls podcast. I'm Anna Bogutskaya, your podcast host, and in this series of the show, I'm looking at one of the most controversial and controversially commercial subgenres of horror, an intersection of three of my most favorite things, classic Hollywood, horror films, and movie stars. Over this series, I'm journeying through the genre that has been called at times hagsploitation, psychobiddy horror, grand dame guignol, or simply hag horror. In this episode, I'll be diving into the last 20 odd years of Betty Davis's career and how horror permeated that last part of her working life. Before we begin, let me credit my sources. I've primarily used Crazy Old Ladies by Carolyn Young for the whole of the series and specifically for this episode, Fasten Your Seatbelts, The Passionate Life of Betty Davis by Lawrence J. Quirk and Mother Goddamn by Whitney Stein and annotated by Betty Davis. Now, since she got her last Oscar nomination for her role as Jane, Betty didn't devote herself to horror per se, but it would be the genre that would dominate the last two decades of her life and career. Time magazine reviewing Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte wrote that she was unabashedly secure in her claw hold as Hollywood's grand damn ghoul. Even though it's a very mean review, I kind of like the grand damn ghoul of it all, not gonna lie. In the 60s alone, she would make four horror films, five if you count the anniversary. 
And two of them, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane and Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte, I've discussed in the previous episodes of the series. Sweet Charlotte was very much a rehash of the older woman in Arrested Development grotesquerie that Betty herself had pioneered in Baby Jane. And that performance is blatantly in conversation with that of Jane Hudson. But unlike her Hollywood counterparts, including Joan Crawford and many other actresses like Olivia de Havilland, Joan Fontaine, and many others that I'll bring up as I go through the lesser known hack horror films that came out in the wake of the success of Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, while those were one-off roles, Betty continued to return to horror and to horror-adjacent films and to the strope of the hag. For this episode, I spoke to Izzy, the mind behind the very excellent film history YouTube channel, Be Kind Rewind, about why horror was such a great fit for Betty's star persona and her style of performance. I love, I kind of love this leg of her career. I mean, obviously there's different ways of reading it, but I think that Betty Davis is kind of perfect for hag horror as an actor. Um, when you watch some of her more prominent roles, say The Letter or Jezebel or Now Voyager, there's um, an underlying energy with Betty Davis where she always feels very nervous, almost ready to burst. Um and she does. I mean, there are very famous scenes, for example, in of human bondage. We get we actually get those outbursts where she very famously screams at um, her lover in the film. She's able to do that here, but in a way that just fully unleashes that energy and that potential for bursting. Of course, and then I think there are other things about her specifically as an actor that make her perfect for this. So again referring to of human bondage that's that was a game changer role f- not only for her but for actors in in the studio system you disgust me me i disgust you 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 you're too fine you won't have none of me, but you'll sit here all night looking at your naked females. Mildred! You cared! You dirty swine! I never cared for you, not once. I was always making a fool of you. You bored me stiff. I hated you. It made me sick when I had to let you kiss me. I only did it because you begged me. You hounded me. You drove me crazy. And after you kissed me, I always used to wipe my mouth. Wipe my mouth! To have a lead actress who didn't care what she looked like, who didn't care if she was likable or not, who uh, es- skewed glamour entirely was revolutionary at the time. And I think her foray into horror is just another example of that. She doesn't care what she looks like. She doesn't care if uh, if people think that she's the villain. She wants to have a good meaty role to dig her teeth into. Um, and I think that is also true... I think it's also true that um, her ambition kind of makes her perfect for that. There are women who are fine 
kind of shying away from the industry and saying, Hey, it's fine. I'm going to retire. I'll leave my legacy what it is. I'm good with my chalet in Switzerland. I don't need to act anymore. And she wasn't like that. She wanted to keep working. She wanted to stay present. She wanted to stay relevant. And this was the easiest probably and uh, most convenient way for her to do that. Um, So I think it kind of just was so simpatico for her. It's the the most convenient, but also the most true to to her skill set and where she was willing to take that as a as an older woman. Where she would take them is what makes these roles so interesting for me. In her previous films, we get to revel in her breakdown, in the screeching and screaming and eventually disappearing completely under a great trauma that was revealed. This was roughly the format of the hack horror films that followed after Baby Jane. But following on from that, Betty made horror films that were sort of directly trying to avoid that pattern, although not always succeeding. You can see as the years went on how Betty grew tired of giving in to this expectation of her to go all out like she did with whatever happened to baby Jane. Having seen all of them, I can separate Betty's horror career into two where she is the main course, either playing an unhinged hag like those in Baby Jane or Sweet Charlotte, or a particularly cruel woman like in Dead Ringer or The Anniversary. And then are the films where she's cast in a supporting role rather than being the lead, playing an elder stateswoman, a calming or an eerie presence like the psycho ripoff Scream Peggy Scream, Burn Offerings, and the fantasy films The Watcher in the Woods and Wicked Stepmother. Horror kept pulling Betty back in. After making her two hag films with Robert Aldrich, Betty wanted to distance herself from horror for a while, but she kept missing out on other roles, including Who's Afraid to Virginia Woolf, which she lost out on in favor of Elizabeth Taylor. Hoping she could find her footing in TV, she did a lot of work on the small screen, appearing either as a witty guest star on late night talk shows or having bit parts in TV shows. Her popularity on television was aided by the fact that her catalogue of movies was being screened over and over on television, which made her, which made her name, which made her familiar to younger audiences. But when Dead Ringer came along, Betty felt that she had the opportunity to do something a bit different and also iterate on something she had done a few decades before. Now, Dead Ringer is closer to a psychological thriller than a hack horror per se, and it was somewhat lumped in with the genre because it came out around the same time in 1964, it starred Betty Davis, and it very much traded on the name that she had built for herself as the Grand Damn Ghoul. The plot of Dead Ringer is a bit convoluted, but it gives Betty the opportunity to, to play two very distinct roles and play around with layers of performance. Dead Ringer reuses some of the hack horror tropes, notably that of two sisters separated by a bit of rivalry. In this case, Betty plays both roles, 
dad of the downtrodden Edie, who's the owner of a downtown LA jazz bar, who has been estranged from her twin sister Margaret after Margaret stole Edie's boyfriend away from her by pretending to be pregnant. Margaret, since widowed, is a rich, cold-hearted socialite while Edie struggles to make ends meet. And under the pretense of reconciliation, Edie kills Margaret and takes her place to finally live the life that she feels she is owed. She passes off Margaret's body as her own and... Anyway, it gets real messy, but in a very entertaining way, so I do suggest you check it out. place you you can get rid of it and and take a trip to outer space money's no object how much would you like you haven't got that much now sit down interestingly Dead Ringer marked the second time since the 1946 drama stolen life that Betty played twins and it's a masterful example of cinematography, the last credit of Ernest Haller, who also showed Baby Jane and was Betty's preferred cameraman. Haller, who had also shot A Stolen Life, basically used the same techniques as 20 years before, using process shots and body doubles to realistically show twin characters interacting simultaneously on screen, which might not seem like a big deal now, but definitely was in the 40s and even in the 60s. Particularly impressive is the murder scene, where Edie drops her own fake suicide note into her sister's lap and while Margaret reads it, shoots her point blank in the head, puts on Margaret's clothes and leaves the jazz club, assuming her sister's identity like it's no big deal. It's very detailed, but it's also so fantastical that there is not a drop of blood anywhere after this woman got shot in the head is wild that you just switch clothes with someone who got shot in the head and walk down the stairs and everyone's like normal clothes <laughs> that's fully, fine fully not a single stain on the not clothes that's like getting yeah. shot in the face by her twin I sister know. yeah i need whatever <laughs> cleaning product she was using <laughs> during that scene she sings a song that feels very much like a throwback to Baby Jane where we kind of I think there's something about Betty Davis's voice and her singing voice in particular that is just kind of bad enough but also good in the way that it's bad that makes it perfect for these kinds of scenes um, so I get a kick out of that song that she sings right after she's <laughs> killed her sister um I, there has to be some metaphor there that I haven't fully unpacked yet of having this woman shoot her double. Kind of like the death of of Betty Davis and a kind of a rebirth of Betty Davis as well. Where we're seeing her in this in this new role in her life. Um, yeah, I haven't fully articulated it yet, but it feels like there's some sort of symbolism there. 
I gotta say, I love this idea of Betty Davis shooting Betty Davis in the face in Dead Ringer as being a sort of metaphor for her ending a Hollywood persona and rebirthing that into another more Grand Guignol-esque version of the star she once was. And I have to say, I really enjoyed this film. Betty is obviously at ease with her co-star, that is herself, and working with familiar faces like the cinematographer, like the makeup artist, and crucially the director, Peter Heinwright, who had actually been her co-star decades before in the melodrama Now Voyager, which is another banger, by the way, but nothing to do with horror. Speaking to the author of Fasten Your Seatbelts, Heinwright would say years later that Betty always had a reputation as a holy terror on set, and I didn't know what to expect, but she was understanding, kindly, patient, even maternal, if that is the word. I suspect she felt sorry for me. Egregiously dictated by what was allowed by the Hayes Code. So, of course, that's not really a murder. It's sort of an accidental death. Um, And here we're kind of allowed to see this character as a villain because this is very explicitly a murder with very malicious intent. Um, And so I think it sets us up to be in a very complicated position as, as the audience, because on the one hand, we are sort of invested in this woman getting away with her crime, but we also very much see her as a villain who has done a very bad thing. Um, And so I think Betty Davis is a very good person to put in that kind of situation because she is so attractively repulsive in these kind of roles where you like watching her do bad things and you like um, the suspense that she might not actually get away with it, despite the fact that um, we like watching her continue her crime spree. So I know that she had a lot of um, reservations about this script. She thought it was very badly written. I don't think it's real well written either, but it's interesting. Um, I think it's fascinating and maybe sort of a a subversion of horror that in the end, she isn't taken down by some cosmic force that, you know, her actions do come back to bite her, but it is ultimately the state finds her and actually brings justice in a very almost like typical way so I think that's very strange um, and interesting as well I like how she differentiates them I don't think it's a revolutionary way that she does it I mean she is essentially pitching her voice lower for the character who has been smoking for years which is nice Um, (laughs) but but I think it's clear enough um Also, their personalities seem quite different. Margaret is very exuberant. Edie seems downtrodden. She seems like she's been going through years of financial troubles and has felt jilted for years Um, and is kind of unsure how to handle luxury. Um, She seems comfortable ordering people around but it also unaware of how her manners are coming off in situations like that so I think she does enough to distinguish them well 
um, in a way that doesn't feel too exaggerated or too exploitative in the way that we traditionally think about performance in high exploitation films, which is, I think, part of why this is perhaps doesn't fit so neatly into the genre. In addition to playing two roles, Dead Ringer gave Betty the opportunity to appear glamorous as the bitchy Margaret. And the film, despite its somewhat overwrought plot, is a study in female bitterness, much like Baby Jane and Sweet Charlotte were. While Betty's Margaret is callous, and she's often presented as being massaged or pampered by younger men, which, as we know, is a sign of a pervert woman, Edie is so blinded and paralyzed by the way that she has been wronged by her sister and the entitlement that she feels that that bitterness and rage is visible in her eyes. It darkens her entire face, especially when she's in the same room as Margaret. This is kind of like that scene in Baby Jane where Betty almost magically appears to de-age when when Jane completely loses touch with reality on the final scene on the beach. Here, when she's confronted with her sister, especially with her sister's dismissive, dismissive attitude toward all the riches and the clothes and the, and the stress-free life that she leads, it passes over her face like a dark cloud. And while most older women in hag horror films are presented as spinsters driven mad by loneliness, here Edie has a devoted boyfriend, and Margaret doesn't really seem to care that much about men as she cares about dresses. But any good thing in her life pales in comparison to the rage that Edie feels towards her sister. Hag horror is a direct descendant of the gothic where doubles and twins and doppelgangers are ever present as a symbol for the duality that can be present within one person. Here, Edie is furious at Margaret, maybe not so much because he stole her boyfriend way back when, but because she got away with wanting to be rich, with wanting to be spoiled, and lying her way to get to that place. After Edie kills Margaret, what we get is to see Betty play essentially two roles in one. She's playing Edie, but she's also playing Edie playing Margaret. Dead Ringer, although it received great reviews, especially singling out Betty's performance, didn't get her another Oscar nomination. Partly, I think, because it was at this point lumped with the copycat Baby Jane films, and the same kind of character and expectation of performance even that Betty had gotten so much acclaim for only a few years before. Meanwhile, in the UK, a regular hammer horror writer-director called Jimmy Sangster was working on creating a series of thrillers, very much in the vein of Psycho and Diabolique's, that he called sort of mini Hitchcock's. These were very much one-word psycho-thrillers called things like Maniac and Paranoiac, Hysteria and Nightmare. And one of these films would be the adaptation of a novel about an unflashy, mild-mannered in-house nanny to a bratty boy who has a dislike of middle-aged women, or as he puts it, an inbuilt antipathy towards middle-aged females. Nanny had been in the family for years. Then, mysteriously, two are dead. Two live on 
in constant terror. But Nanny wasn't responsible, was she? I'm frightened, Nanny. I'm frightened. Was Nanny to blame when this radiant young mother crumbled into a neurotic woman? But Nanny, I don't want him home. And young Joey, is he terrorized or terrorizing? He's an homicidal nut. He's a monster. It's the cruelest thing I've ever heard of. What happens if you die in the night? There was, by virtue of the amount of horror roles that she's already done, a set expectation that Betty would be revealed to be the villain in any given film of the genre. And the nanny sort of reinvents that. Even though Betty wasn't the first choice for the role, that was Greer Garson, another Hollywood great who actually rejected the script on the basis of it being a horror film, afraid that it might damage her reputation, even though she had not made a film in years up until that point. But I digress. Even though she had not been the first choice for that role, Betty accepted it because it wasn't like what audiences had come to expect of her. In The Nanny... She is a traumatized woman that is hiding a great trauma. She is a woman who is driven mad and has a nervous breakdown. But she is not fundamentally a woman of privilege like some of the other hag characters that she had played before. She is not a rich woman. She is very much of the working class and in the service of a middle class family. And she is crucially not flashy. It's interesting when I was watching the nanny, I was um, I was thinking whether or not she was actually cast well in this or in that or not, because I think for the first half of the film, you're kind of asked whether or you're kind of asked who you should believe. Is it the little boy? Is he actually just a little shit? And teasing this poor old woman who's doing everything she can for him or is she actually a figure that you should be scared of who's kind of lying to you i think with betty davis especially at this point when she'd already done a few hag horror films you kind of know which one you're getting uh so i was thinking okay does this need it like a deborah carr or something where she is a very sweet woman and it would be surprising (laughs) if she were to turn and have actually done something quite sad or um unexpected and I think it's interesting to find out that the original person that they had wanted for this role was Greer Garson who very much comes from that vein where it would be unexpected Um, but I think uh, Betty Davis kind of plays this role well I think she sticks the landing in a way that is very convincing and very um... There is almost, um, to echo what you're saying, kind of like a decreased amount of exaggeration in those Mm -hmm. roles from something like Baby Jane to even immediately after that Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte and Dead Ringer and The Nanny, where she's peeling back those layers of literally makeup, but also costuming and becoming a little bit more sober, I think, in her performance than at the start of those, at the start of these types of films. Totally. And I think it's kind of unsustainable. At a certain point, I think, especially after Hush Has Charlotte, it must have been clear to her 
that she could easily just become a caricature as opposed to an actor, which I don't think she ever would have wanted. She thought of herself very seriously as an actor. And the nanny too, I think, is good not only to put in context of Betty Davis's career, but also of Hammer Horror and some of the other films that they were making at this time. If you look at what they were making for Tallulah Bankhead at this time, who's often compared to Betty Davis, it's very exaggerated and they want her to kind of become that very caricatured grand guignol in a way that Betty's not being asked to do that here. And I think that probably, I'm sure (laughs) that was kind of a consideration when she was thinking about this role is what it would actually offer her in terms of doing something different and adding to what she'd already been doing within this genre. Carolyn Young points out that Nanny was a very different type of spinster for Betty, that while Baby Jane was overmade up and histrionic, Nanny was, quote, so drab that she almost becomes invisible, with a hat pulled over her grey hair and with her black dress and white apron marking her as the servant class. And while I'm not saying that Nanny is any deep exploration of class in the UK, it is, in a way, an outlier to the hags that Betty had portrayed before and makes for a fascinating and genuinely creepy watch. Betty did not take another role for two years after she made The Nanny. But she would make another Hammer horror film in the 60s, although this one would be less horror and more black comedy. In this scene, Mrs. Taggart's adult children, each of them bearing a secret that they have not yet confessed to their mother, rally in her house to celebrate her anniversary, but bear in mind, her husband is long dead. They all wait downstairs in the living room, put on a record, and wait for their mother to make her grand entrance into the room. On the night we were wed, we bought our true Betty's entrance here, dressed head to toe in red with a matching red eye patch, gives her the gravitas that we expect of her, but with a dose of hilarity. Like some sort of hammer succession, Mrs. Taggart constantly belittles her children whilst demanding never-ending attention and devotion from them. She even wipes her cheek after her grandchild kisses her. And at one point, she leaves a glass eye on the pillow of her bed, knowing that one of her sons will bring his girlfriend for some hanky-panky in there. There is one thing I will not tolerate in my house, Karen. That is the shouting of abuse. In her book, Crazy Old Ladies, author Carolyn Young calls her appearance that of a deranged flapper. Imagine, if you will, a camp one-eyed Logan Roy... And you've got yourself, Mrs. Taggart. Her next horror film won't appear until 1973 in the made-for-TV psycho rip-off slasher Scream Pretty Peggy. And frankly, it's not that interesting a film to discuss in depth, and I would only recommend that you seek it out if you are a hack horror or Brady Davis completist like I am. And it's sort of uninteresting because at this point... Betty looks mostly bored. She spends most of Scream Pretty Peggy in the bed, nursing a teacup that has some gin in it. But 
watching these films almost back to back, something stands out to me pretty quickly. In a lot of hag horror films, the hags in question are presented as bad or failed mothers, either because they do not have children at all or because they are neglectful, abusive or overbearing mothers. In The Anniversary, Betty is the cruel, dismissive mother. In Scream Pretty Peggy, she has kept her severely disturbed son under her thumb in order to have someone to take care of her. Oh, I should have done something sooner. But I, I'm an old woman and I needed him. I wasn't the kind of mother I should have been. But it was my life too. And if I'd done something sooner, they'd have taken him away. And I would have been all alone. No one to take care of me. You understand that, don't you? In The Nanny, she's a single mother whose only daughter died through a botched illegal abortion and who accidentally caused the death of a child in her care. And later on in The Watcher in the Woods, which is a much more melancholic fantasy film, Betty's character is an elderly woman who becomes attached to a new girl moving into her stately home because the girl reminds her of her daughter who disappeared years before. That's interesting. I do think it is more broadly a warning to women for exactly what you said, that if you neglect your children or you spend time away from them, something terrible is going to happen and they're going to be traumatized or they're going to die or be taken by aliens um, or some other horrible thing. I do think it's interesting to think about her as the person who is the person kind of embodying that lesson, so to speak. If you think about her most famous roles, in most of them, she's explicitly childless. She's never framed or thought of, I think, as a woman who often played a family woman or um, in the mold of a Greer Garson, for example, a Mrs. Miniver. She's not that kind of actress. She's always the kind of woman who maybe resents her child like in Little Foxes, or uh, has lived her life so as a professional, so that she had no need for mothering, as in All About Eve. So I think she's kind of always had an antagonistic relationship with the family structure within her films that I think maybe trained her for this kind of regretful maternal figure stereotype that she kind of comes to embody in this era of her career. Later on in 1976, in the much better horror film, Burn Offerings, Betty's character is largely a warm, stately presence in the family that moves into a haunted house. She's seen knitting, cracking jokes, and being generally benign until she gets ill and dies in this prolonged and painful way. Burnt Offerings is great, by the way, and you should check it out if you're into spooky houses. Betty gets some great scenes, especially as the house starts infecting the family and, and is eating away at their life force. 
Betty's character, the well-meaning Aunt Elizabeth, is so worried and frustrated. There's only a little flicker of the Betty Davis fire in the entire film when she's frustrated at being patronized and dismissed when she raises very valid concerns about how maybe their house is evil. I believe you too. No, you don't. It's obvious. We all forget things, Elizabeth. And... Uh, at your age. I don't forget things. I know what I do. And in The Watcher in the Woods from 1980, she is a wise, well-meaning figure as well, far from a hag. I, I think it's exactly that. It's much more stripped down. I think it also positions her as kind of this, as an elder, more so than a lot of these other films do. I mean elder in the sense of not necessarily the scary old witch who lives by herself in a house, which like in a way it kind of does frame her that way, but it also um, lets her have a little bit of wisdom and experience that she can kind of guide these younger characters with. So it's not quite as degrading as some of these others might be considered. These roles, like Izzy says, are much more stripped down. She's very much an elder source of wisdom, and her presence there is to provide gravitas rather than riff off her star persona more directly, like her previous horror films had done. Betty's final role would be in the 1989 Larry Cohen black comedy Wicked Stepmother where she plays a witch called Miranda that midway through the film decides to turn herself into a cat and exchange bodies with another witch. It's not a very good film. And it's kind of embarrassing for all of us that this was Betty's last credit. The reason her character turned herself into a cat was because Betty walked out of the production, something that Larry Cohen wrote about in an article for Film Comment in 2012 titled in why I assumed he thought must have been hilarious, I killed Betty Davis. At this point in her life, when she was approached by and cast in Cohen's film, Betty's health was really frail. She had already survived two mastectomies and two strokes. And although Cohen says that they got along swimmingly, she did abandon the production either due to creative reasons, according to her, or, according to him, due to her failing health. Betty Davis died in October 1989, leaving us with one of the most astonishing bodies of work in Hollywood history, and having boldly and bluntly taken on board a then disreputable genre, she made her mark on it. In this last act of her career, these roles were, in a way, extensions of her star persona. I found an interview once with Joan Crawford from around the time of Baby Jane, where she talks about how interested she is in the actor's studio and how much she would want to take lessons with um, Lee Strasberg if she felt comfortable going to a class. But of course, being Joan Crawford, that'd be kind of difficult to just show up at a, at a random class. Um, Betty Davis never said anything like that. Betty Davis was very much convinced that she knew the correct way to act because she is a proven successful actress and she 
would continue acting exactly as she wanted to in the 1940s. And the only way that I think you can really do that, <laughs> as as much as cinema had changed, going from the you know 50s through the 60s and eventually you know into Watcher in the Woods era, is to insist on some sort of subgenre that would allow you to be that melodramatic, and maybe perhaps come off as a camp figure. So I think she insists on that. She insists on her creativity with her own costuming and character design um, and that kind of pent up energy that she's always that she always had in her studio work. So I do very much see it as a continuation. I don't think that's true of all of them, though. I think a lot of like if you watch um, like a Barbara Stanwyck exploitation or a Olivia de Havilland exploitation, like those are all very kind of similar, but there seems to be something about Betty Davis in particular who was able to kind of maintain her persona in a in a new way. But Betty wasn't the only actress from the golden age of Hollywood who took part in horror films. And in the next episode, I'll be covering the sort of cottage industry of exploitation that arose after the commercial success of Whatever Happened to Baby Jane and Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte. And I'll cover the good, the bad, and the super trashy of the peak era of exploitation. Thank you so much for listening to this episode and for listening to the Final Girls podcast. Please do rate, review, subscribe, wherever you get your podcasts. Those things really do matter a lot. Thank you to Izzy for her contribution and do go check out her YouTube channel, Be Kind Rewind, if you're into Hollywood history. Until next week, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Anna B. Demented, and you can follow the podcast on the same platforms at The Final Girls UK. You can also dive into our previous seasons where we have covered witches, vampires, female monsters, and teen horror. All the good shit, basically. <laughs>